0: Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altai, meet with ear opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Highly Conversations. This season of Highly Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Art. Today, we are hosting the legendary Raks Media Collective, formed in New Delhi in 1992 by Monica Narula, Jibesh Bhakti, and Shudabrata Sengupta. I like to call them intellectuals at large. But their production ranges from artistic to curatorial projects, from theoretical to educational work, in collaboration with architects, computer programmers, divers, writers, artists, curators, and theatre directors, and many more. The collective also co-founded Sarai, the interdisciplinary and incubatory space at the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in Delhi. And also, they are part of Cyber Mohalla project, which we touch on today. Cyber Mohalla is a network of labs that allow access to current digital technologies and provide the space and workshops for writing, filmmaking, and digital photography to women and children from neighborhoods that have limited access to such resources. These labs are also settings where a kind of productive fiction takes place as the participants continue reflecting on their environments. Media Collective is also active as artists and curators. They've curated mega exhibitions such as the Manifesta and the Shanghai Biennial, and their own work has been exhibited in many biennials and museums alike. You'll hear their unique blend of thinking on technologies and media, from surveillance to bureaucratic interfaces as deeply embedded in societal dynamics, and we'll get to explore together how they have been producing knowledge as artists. So welcome, Jibesh and Monica today with us, and thanks for taking the time to join Ahali.
1: Thank you, Jan. We look forward to this discussion. <laughs> this is our thirtieth year, so it's good to have started with good discussions.
0: <laughs> Thank you. So maybe we can start with even the title because I know that along the way you have invested a lot in words voices, their connotations and the movement of ideas and many things like that. And I think even though the title is like three decades ago, it's somehow always, to me at least, observing from a distance, it kind of feeds back into the practice. And the third word in the title, the collective, I think is not only the collective of you three, but also a collective of media or mediums uh, that you employ and other expanded notions of a collective. With media, I think you also venture into like, other technologies, mediums, tools, languages, and kind of, let's say, knowledge apparatuses. And with rucks, I think in Turkish, it's also common use is to dance and the, how ideas dance, how they move, and also how agencies contact one another is somehow to me at least, crystallizes in the name RUX Media Collective. I mean, I start with the reading of (laughs) your title, but maybe we can go back to the emergence, how you got together and how the kind of title emerged. Because I think, as I said, it feeds the following three decades.
1: I just want to start by saying that you really gave the name a very expansive space because, you know, a lot of people like the word RUX, sometimes don't write the word collective. They don't sometimes don't like the word. They say media is too cumbersome. Why did you write RUX Media Collective? Why not? It's just RUX Collective. So you're the first one, I think, after a long time who spelled it out as a a kind of with a philosophical, phenomenological space, because actually it started with that. All these different ways in which one kind of lives the present started with this uh, evocation of the word RUX and then the word media and collective.
2: Well, you know, the story I can, I better start in Media Res um, because when you are reading the name and you're reading the practice into the name, um, like Givesh said, it's really nice because I think it was some years into being called, calling ourselves Lux Media Collective that we tried to do a translation, which was looking at our own practice. So, of course, when we were young and we saw the word Lux and we thought of whirling dervishes and we thought of the dance of ecstasy, but the ecstasy that leads to a relationship with bigger ideas and bigger with an expanded horizon and a connection actually between horizon and or sky and ground. All of those ideas were very important to us and we were very moved by them. And so we said, let's call ourselves drugs. And, um, and the word media, I mean, you know, we were young people who were in a film school and we were discovering photography and video and 16 millimeter and all of that. So we were just omnivorous, I think, um, as an attitude about everything. Um, and I think that's a pretty good attitude to have when you're when you're you know when you're discovering the world and you're discovering yourselves in the world, and you're discovering what it means to be with others in the world. So, the word media in the in the, in the name was very much like we'll take what, whatever we get, we will just grab, we will take with both hands and see what we can do with it, and and not uh, and I think that's part of the reason why we never had a word had a manifesto. Right, like we didn't believe in that idea that we were coming together for something. It's like there's no reason to come together except the fact of being together. Because being together, you can do things in a way that we felt still feel uh, that offers uh, uh, a, 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 and always an opening out of the frame that one what one starts with. But I began by saying that maybe one should look at it in media res because there was a moment when we said, "Wait a minute, we could look at this name as." kinetic contemplation because um you know we have said more than once literally repeated ourselves at Nasiam by saying for us there is no distinction between thought and practice and I think this comes very much from 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 you know when you are normally for example one thinks that meditation is a still practice right you sit down you breathe and then you you know you're meditating but what is incredible about the whirling dervishes is are there in movement and that it is that movement that provides an altered state
0: um
2: and i think that's really important for us is to say that there is contemplation in kinesis that there is thought in practice and then therefore there is also practice and thought that you cannot tear these two asunder and that that these things are always prevalent in in everything we do and i think reading that as a self-aware moment was quite good. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but it wasn't at the beginning, I I promise you that.
0: Fantastic. No, but this notion of kinetic contemplation, I think, and also not separating thought from practice is, I think, really resonates with me as well. That's beautiful. So, I mean, you touched on media and also like the idea of image and moving images being one of the key starting points. And of course, since you got together, the proliferation and the kind of hyperinflation of images and imagery, use of images, and the, let's say, mediation of images, the technologies such as social media and what have you, have really kind of grown to probably many different territories compared in like the time when you started. So I'm curious, what is for you at the moment, the place of These images or imagery, image making, what are the maybe technologies that you are currently interested in or that you are currently investing in by thought and practice?
1: I think this will need a longer expansion by Monica, but I will just say that, you know, mid-90s, we did a three, four years research project on history and practice of cinematography, which we never published, but we uh, uploaded or shared all the, interviews we did with uh, master cinematographers working in the industry then when in the uh, India has a huge commercial Bombay industry and one of the things that we found very fascinating was the highly developed extensively ad- arrived at image making uh, qualities uh, of black and white was suddenly jettisoned and went into complete disrepair and neglect and whole cinematic re- regime shifted to a low quality color so so when that happened, when the technology, because the shift in the commercial aspect of cinema uh, needed color and the color mechanisms started changing rapidly. And we li- looked at so many uh, the master cinematographers talking about the confusion and the hesitations that staged this transition from a very high quality image sensorium to a very degraded and uh, cumbersome image sensorium, but which was the future. You know, And you knew that the cinematographers had to reorganize, relearn. So this is an instance that kind of changed and made us very aware of these sudden shifts that actually can change the direction of the future. And then as practitioners, you have to really unlearn and learn and learn with some with resentment, some with joy, some with perils of being falling out. But actually, it's a huge kind of ferment that builds up. And I think sometimes the present uh, is uh, locked in that format.
0: And the, what's undergoing today is like a parallel experience.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. Jibesh, um, you must talk more about some of it because we actually were, were thinking on this and writing on some of these questions that you are posing with this relationship with the, what is the status of the, of the image really. And it's an mm-hmm. interesting and, and a relationship of the image with futurity. As a matter of fact, we did an exhibition we curated once at MACBA, and it was called "In the Open Orange Shell." And I was mm-hmm. talking about how the future will come. Sometimes it comes open and straightforward, and you can you know what's coming, and you can deal with it. And sometimes it comes in stealth and you have to find yourself sort of grappling with its unexpected. And one of the things I think that is unexpected uh, is the fact that in spite of the fact that billions of images are made every day, actually many more, many, many more are made and never seen mm. because they're made by surveillance cameras. They're made by like those kind of apparatuses that do not have an eye. So it became an interesting question for us. We were thinking this when we were writing recently is an image, for example, even in what is the kind of ontology of the image? If there is no viewer, for example, right? Like this terabytes of of data, you know, of hard disk in various locations, multiple, multiple locations of, you know, hours and hours and hours of people walking and emptiness and streets and roads and houses and buildings. And and it's a very interesting question of, like, that's what I'm thinking about a lot these days, is the relationship to the algorithm, but especially of the image, you know. So, and how does that technological, is it apparatus in the way we even understand apparatus, has it exceeded or leaked out of that term because there is no idea of, uh, of, the, of the gaze at all?
0: That's very interesting because when I was asking the question, I was also thinking about the ways in which images are deployed today, you know, sent out into the world. But you are also pointing out to the emergence of new technologies that not necessarily the images are not to be seen but maybe processed by an artificial intelligence through some pattern recognition to pinpoint just certain instances to be then viewed or something. There's a new kind of computer processing before the images are even deployed or even observed.
1: You know, one of the things that, can uh, when we were in uh, Walker Center, and that's the work you remember, it's a structure we've made with Atelier Baba. The whole thing was uh, the kind of an open culture, a sense of where the culture shares, opens its code, shares its uh, forms of making, and then allows the world to repurpose and develop from it. So that was the idea. And that was the idea that everybody will have the infrastructure so that everybody will have the server, the ways of doing. So the world was distributed as a multiple uh, forms of various experimental sites of servers and uh, softwares and people doing a kind of a cultural practice that is open-ended. Uh, but that was 2003, two thousand three, and a lot of our Sarai imagined practice was this. But then by 2007-08, the idea of the platform capitalism takes the idea that the servers are centralized. So you actually participate in platforms rather than work with the infrastructure of the server. So what is interesting, in a few years' time, it is this shift that happens in the language almost, like... You log in, it's free, you just have a password, then you produce your worlds. And that's the kind of practice that we're doing from 2000, which was a bit like for us, the black and white to color shift, because it shifted the platform. And platform changes the nature of image. Platform changes the nature of circulation of image. The whole idea of virality more than interpretation takes over. So we are actually a generation that was uh, seeing this shift uh, through us, through ourselves. We were in one terrain, Pushed to another terrain, uncomfortable. Some comfortable, and yet still swimming. So this movement of the story of the image is also movement of this uh, emergence of new languages and other potentialities being pushed aside. And in the present, I think uh, we see this tension: the loss of the, uh, the the whole lonely, the lonely crowd, the loss. The lost figure that is emerging in European, especially a lot of uh, European writing, uh, because that is where the experientially more articulate uh, philosophical languages are deployed much faster than any place in the world. You can see this uh, tension evoke the loss of the self and agency in the platform economy, where the image is independent of volition, intentionality, volition. So all the kind of older tropes of way of thinking, the image is kind of losing its ground.
0: But then also we are touching on many different things. I'll try to kind of first maybe just to contextualize the 2003 exhibition was when we first met actually or the only time we met. (laughs) And you had the installation, you had an installation which was kind of blinking an eye into how uh, images can circulate but also how knowledge can be gathered and it was a more a vision of a distributed or decentralized idea of multiplicity of servers, whereas the transition happened on the other direction, which is now called web2. So there's that, just a parenthesis. And then what you are pointing to now is the current condition of the image and the image maker as the self or as the, let's say, individual who is kind of lonely in this crowd. And also more and more, I mean, this is not something you said, but the more and more is becoming, I'm imagining, context such as TikTok where... Even the format or the, even the form is prescribed and you are just repeating a kind of performance. You know, I'm thinking about the dares or the dances or things like that. That, I mean, I'm not subscribed to TikTok, so I'm just making this up partially. But <laughs> it feels to me that the form or the format is even so kind of prescribed.
1: The TikTok became so authoritarian and so assertive that the banned it in India. Uh, in, the name, in, in the name of that, it is a Chinese software. But actually, t- TikTok produced a very, very different politerian landscape, actually, of people asserting a different kind of... Uh, there's some very nice writing on it. Mm. What do you mean by that? The whole world of people who are not in the world of image making. This, they consumed image, but they would never produce their image. Mm-hmm. That whole world emerged in TikTok. So this platform is also a very unstable, unpredictable landscape. Because it can suddenly make accessible, because it reduces the threshold of access. It kind of lowers the threshold of access in a very interesting way. Because all economies of consumption does that. So by that reducing that threshold of access, it produced enormous amount of content of people who never saw themselves as content produ- would make content for the new industrialized landscapes or new industrialized landscapes of media. So Antituf was flooded. So finally, it was very irreverential to the codes of ruling and the codes of uh, the caste codes or the gender codes of life. So, And it kind of was quite uh, uh, anarchic and unpredictable. And geopolitical arguments was used to demobilize it as a
0: site. I didn't know it was banned in India, but yeah.
1: Yes, (laughs) during the pandemic, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, because that was one time where people were actually (laughs) every day uploading.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but maybe we can move on to also like from images to language and to words and voices. You work a lot with language as well, and you are very elaborate in the way you talk about your own work, as well as thinking about how words and voices emerge or can be presented. And I'm, of course, thinking of your use of Not only text or language, but also somehow sounding and reading. I don't know if it's a correct observation in your regard, but I feel that there is like you work a lot with the language, the speaking, but it's also more about a tool for opening up the voices and the soundings and the readings. This is not really a question, but I don't know if you would agree.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's kind of difficult not to because I think for us, the question of, I mean, it's a very big question slash comment because I'm thinking about the affect of sounding and reading while I'm I'm talking right now. But I would say that um, the question of language and how it accrues as a form and then what leaks out of it, right? Like what leaks out of a word besides the meaning that it obviously has? And of course, it's always very interesting to think of things like patois and like flying and so on and so forth, like how things get made. You know, I remember we were reading this uh, fragment from Abhinavagupta, which I think is a ninth century text, which was looking at performance, a text written about performance. But there was this one moment where it talks about horripilation, What makes your hair stand on end, right? And it was an interesting moment because it was through performance, it was thinking on some of that. But we began to think of the kind of for example, it also talked about in the book was, or in that fragment we read was, and this is something I think we've all thought, that one does not live in a few emotions, right? It's not a side, you know, one is not just happy or just sad or just angry. One uses that to say, I'm happy, or, I'm sad or I'm angry, but we all know that effectively we, it's always much more cloudy, much more inchoate, much more layered, much more complex. And we remember having this conversation and saying we must think about conjoining emotion to see what emerging so that became a word but that became an interesting starting point also so since then for example we've been trying to make new words I mean there's a great and there's a great history to that apparently I'm not claiming it but apparently Shakespeare you know for example has made 400 or something contributed at least 400 words to the English language but it's always very interesting to us like what is it that generates the word why is that word felt necessary why does that word become the language of the street, uh, what is the effect that, and, you know, this is obviously not a question of what comes first, but it is always very interesting what becomes accessible. For, you know, recently I read that a child in America, I think of Pakistani, maybe 13 or 14 years old, uh, she, I think, contributed a new word and she won a prize for it. And the word is oblivionaire, <laughs> which is a mix of oblivious and "billionaire." And I thought that a 14-year-old coming up with a word like oblivionaire says something about so much, right? Like, So it's always very interesting. The question of language is not only the question of language, obviously, because nothing is ever the question of itself. But I think language becomes a material or it becomes a landscape that we spend a lot of time in because of these kind of things, because sometimes looking at one thing you think you're looking at one emotion and then you find seventy others, you know. So in that way, I would say the same thing happens with language for us.
0: And I remember, I guess it was Shuda, but mentioning spells or like uttering things into existence by speaking, which is the kind of core of magic as well. Like you call for something.
1: Is that a power of the word to conjure the world, conjure a a world itself, you know. So the word is not a, a kind of a, has its own power to create through its sounds and its uh, utterance in a certain temporal dimension and conjure a word. But that's, you know, the whole power of Hulja Sim Sim. All the power of the words are there, you know, in our various storytelling traditions that we have all learned. But one thing about language that also interests us is that coming in a space where uh, being between languages is a very common experience of life. Between so all of we live almost between three language on a routine basis, and then there are multiple other flows of language uh, that uh, that you engage with. You're listening to all kinds of languages in media space as well as of media space. So we're kind of tuned to living in this kind of minor worlds of constant translations. So I think that tunes us to a way that you know language is continuously shifting, creating kind of gaps and. Possibility of a new word. I give an example. There was this uh, friend of ours who works with us in our studio now. He's kind of his friends where they were living, their house was torn and they were sent back to a very edge of the city uh, called Geura. And he was walking that it was a very barren landscape, just a newly uh, transformed landscape from agriculture with just marking on the floor. There was nothing else. There was infrastructure, nothing. And uh, he uh, went back home and he was talking to his father, and his father who has built his life collecting recycled objects in the city, described that landscape as in a word, nishastaga, which I've never really found in any proper dictionary, but there is referred to in a very specialized dictionary, as a moment of suspended time, where time is suspended for the world to appear. Now that word stayed between us, and not only did it stay between us, it went to our urbanist friends, who whenever they see an urban conundrum, they call it nishastaga. And we understand between us what is meant, which means that some, the temporal logic of settlement has been upstaged. Something else is at play. And that something else is the unsettling that is producing the emergent new sensibility and life around it. So this kind of thing comes with continuously living in a very unstable multilingual landscapes, which our cities are. Fortunately, our cities are in Delhi.
0: Yeah, no, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I'm going to ask for the spelling of that so that we can also <laughs> put it in our episode notes. Cool. So maybe now that, I mean, we naturally came to the context of the city and I think also with Sarai and maybe other projects you were either part of or kind of involved in to various degrees, like the Cyber Mohalla project I'm familiar with and the Sarai has been like a influential organization. I want to talk a bit about your place because you're also on the one hand very mobile globally speaking you operate in many different geographies but you stayed somehow in Delhi and you are located there so maybe we can talk a little bit about your presence there or your relationship to the place how do you see your presence in Delhi or maybe we can talk about some specific projects that were involved in the urban context in Delhi and beyond?
2: I was just going to say how difficult this is to answer or engage with as a question because in a way the city is everything, right? It's a city that as a national capital region is now more than 13 million people. We're talking about a scale of population that obviously is of, you know, the size of country. So it's not even a city, so you know little pockets of your city. But I think the questions that we were thinking about, for example, raised by the word Nishastaga or the experiences of Sarai and Saiba were a kind of a, were a capacity to be attentive to what it permits besides what it disallows. And I think often one thinks of cities like in the South because of what they disallow. And there's a lot of, you know, we had a work many years ago, it was called Coordinates of Daily Life. And one of the things I remember when we were making that and we made these stickers, which we would go out and put in the streets of Castle at night as kind of guerrilla stickering. This is the wall of the state. Do not stick stickers on it. And that was, of course, the kind of recursive play on disallowance, but that is how one thinks of one city, because the number of prohibitions that Delhi has are surprising, more than surprising.
0: Just a parenthesis about these terms, because we had, as guests, design studio for social intervention, they are in Boston. So in the US context, the permit also means disallowance, you know, like you have to have a permit. And Lori was referring that the Boston is a very permitted space, which means there's you have to get permission to do anything. And they are mainly working with neighborhoods of color. It gets even more or less permitted, in a sense.
2: No, I think that's a really important point, because this is a question of governmentality. It's a question of how the imagination of the urban is also an imagination of the citizen, right? And or what a citizen is permitted to be. So these are connected kind of questions. But... One of the things that, because you mentioned what this idea of permittedness and what it can mean, I mean, I remember we had a whole conversation and we wrote about this amongst ourselves on the idea of illegibility and the importance of that, for example. So if you look at a a piece of land in urban landscape in India, then it has, of course, ownership, but it often has tenorial presence, right? So there have been people who have tenorial rights on that piece of land because there have been generations of people who have been living on it doesn't necessarily mean that they own it. But this question of tenurial rights and what tenurial rights can be, that was often negotiated and, you know, it was not a direct procedure, but it was maintained over years. And, for example, in Bangalore, this is our friend Solomon Benjamin, who was an urbanist and who spent a lot of time at Sarai as well. And he was looking at the fact that this... Um, heightened 20, 20th and late 20th century, early 21st century sort of a need for transparency. You know, this is glass coming home to youth. This idea that transparency is a great and wonderful thing because once you know things then you can do things better. It meant that it was erasing histories of tenorial presence because in Bangalore, for example, they were making ownership rights as documents. And then we began to have conversation around the question of illegibility. And how does one think of illegibility, the fact that an excessive display of the self, or an excessive articulation of the self to power, or to even to each other, and the kind of disservice it does to you in the longer term, because you know it connects back to questions of knowledge and the internet for you, know, because it all connects back together what is privacy, what is permitted, what is the kind of rights that you have about who you think you are, uh, what governmentality thinks of you as a citizen. But, fundamentally the question of illegibility is a question where both cities and self have to be reconfigured and and keeping things illegible permits possibility it permits a play that does not narrow the future of where and who you are
0: that's very interesting so you are suggesting sometimes the lack of legibility is also a kind of positive for other possibilities to emerge do i understand correctly or
1: yeah there's a kind of kind of you negotiate uh legibility so it's kind of negotiated illegibility legibility the in hindi there's a beautiful word which is basically you keep a veil the play of the veil Yeah, play of the veil you keep it alive keep it mobile moving so that it allows you certain freedoms and a certain masquerade a certain uh, kind of uh, possibilities always at play you know and as as it is not it is not in that language of duping and that kind of binaries of you know it's not in that it is a kind of a play to keep certain life forms alive and breathing because life forms needs time to breathe and sometimes in our search for very legible definitional ways of defining life we do violence to the temporal regimes of forms of living you know yeah what we have learned in our last 20 years actually thinking urban and then living it in some very intense ways is that it is the uh, questions that are coming out of it are something that are going to shape very fundamental questions of the future and co-inhabitation is tested to its limit here so and if co-inhabitation has to be a serious proposition of human society to think through with so-called the climate change as we were discussing before. Co-inhabitation not as taken for granted, co-inhabitation not as me and my neighbor, but a very wide perimeter of the world. I think this question the cities are posing, the forms of life it experiments with, it kind of negotiates and falls into, will be something that's important to register.
0: And also cohabitation then includes the non-human living things and also technologies and infrastructures and how we co-inhabit.
1: There's so many animal worlds in our city. The goats and the dogs and, you know, like they're not to be banished. So now the good thing, the good turn that has happened is that this is not seen as an older life form or a life form that has to give way. So that is the good thing that has happened in the last decade or 15 with this urgency of the climate. The value judgmental life forms have stopped a little bit and things are being seen what it is, you know, and what is it doing? What is it activating? What is enacting? So that's a very good chance to rethink our cities again back. Where keeping a goat was seen as an anachronism, now it is not so, you know?
0: That's very interesting. And again, a small parenthesis could be worthwhile, but maybe you can help me describe the Cyber Mohalla Project because it also touches on this question of legibility and literacy especially in relation to digital technologies?
2: Cyber Mahalla was a program or a project that Sarai started in the very beginning of Sarai. uh, And its imagination was, how does one think of the neighborhood in relationship to digitality, which is what the name is. Cyber means the digital and Mahalla is the neighborhood. And the premise of this was to start with uh, media labs, like we had a media lab in Sarai, we proposed to make media Labs in certain neighborhoods in the city. The first one was in LNJP, which is a neighborhood primarily working class, uh, behind Connaught Place, is like a big center of the like a big, fancy part of the city. And the premise was simply the question of I guess it was sort of asking survived from the very beginning. And Thbermola was the point of that, in, in the way it sort of worked out, was the question of knowledge and phenomenology, right? Like who makes knowledge, who reflects on it, and who gets to speak? That life, and for us, it was always very important, and that was the beginning of Cybermalla. And of course, it became its own independent force and did all the things that it did. But the question was, the one that, how does one create a landscape where there can be an equal space to think and act on the urban and the digital together? Just to making your own, Cybermalla became an ensemble, and their publications, their texts were often collectively written. And they did a number of contributions to
1: publications and so on. Because, you know, like recently, if you see the uh, last few years, if you follow a, if a little bit of rudimentary way, if you follow India, you will see there is a... I'm giving this as an example of the uh, import of our experience with Sabamola, is that the crisis around the document. So the document has become a very crucial vector by which people are interrogated now. Not only earlier they were interrogated about their residency claim on a city. Document was very central and accessing state welfare. Okay. And for us growing up, accessing our associative living. So, if I have to form an organization, you know, I need documents. But now the documents have taken on a charge of the making of the very claim to citizenship is to be interrogated for everyone. And primarily for the uh, top end is Muslim citizens and then followed by other people. So, what happens is this documents in Saibamullah, we understood. The rich life of document that people have. And we also understood that the documents were produced by the hard work of women. Women would stand in line. Women actually produced the documentary evidence of the life of a family. Women actually negotiated with bureaucracy, with various different welfare structures and infrastructures. Uh, men played the political space and field and the uh, decision making, but the women negotiated it and created the documentary history of families and neighborhoods. Now, suddenly, when you see hundreds and thousands of women, in this case, Muslim women, coming out and protesting and claiming, reclaiming the space of citizenship and debating, reclaiming the site of the equality and fraternity, what you find is that the the richness that we understood then, that these are the women who knows the documentary life, who knows the state, who knows actually... so So they are very aware of when the documentary when the state starts becoming malevolent with documents now this if we had not done sabarmal if we had not talked to 500 young writers thinking about their urban life and thinking and discussing with each other uh, sites of what it means to live in common we would have never understood this power of uh, certain neighbourhoods and households produce understanding the apparatus of governmentality and understanding the apparatus of welfare infrastructure and as well as futures in the city and now future in the nation so in that sense, it is a, we have yet to write this. Uh, our friends in Saav few, of, some of them are very articulate and they make great uh, WhatsApp notes, but they are very lethargic. And one or two have uh, recently started writing. So we are expecting the second round of writing. First round of writing is published and properly archived and everything. A second round of writing, which is aware of this new conflict in the urban, the new conflict in the very ground. So it is not literacy in that sense. It is a form of knowledge. That transforms the way urban itself has to be again thought.
2: The other uh, parenthesis to the parenthesis is the Shaheen Bagh protest that Jibesh was talking, referring to, which is when uh, hundreds of women and then thousands of Muslim women came onto the street in 2019 to block a main highway because the government wants to change the fundamental. It's called the Citizen Amend Mend Act. So it wants to amend who can be a citizen. And so the question of the document, and of course, as you said, the people who are looked at most suspiciously are the people who are from the Muslim community, even though it's only 20% of the Indian population, is the other that creates a lot of anxiety. But it was the Muslim women who were standing and then moving from the streets. And then, of course, other thousands of other people joined over days uh, and so on. And the constitution became the kind of the text that was uh, carried and held aloft by the women. But also by uh, and and all sorts of discussions and conversations and speeches and then you know, it had its own life force again. But it was very intense, and it was the coming of COVID that brought it to a halt. And in the very early days of COVID, while everything else was frozen and we were all supposed to be staying at home and not moving, the first thing the government did was have painters erase all signs of all the signages and the writings and the markers on the walls of of Shaheen Bach. It was like, while well, you know, it would come in the paper. So it really was the locus of a lot of anxiety. And even now, it's the, the very phrase Shaheen Bach, which is the name of a neighborhood, it evokes a lot of anxiety is, is one nice way to put it. Tremors, not anxiety. Tremor. Yeah. Tremor is a better word.
0: I had a couple more questions about the way you work, but maybe I can keep that because I'm also conscious of the time and maybe now would be a good moment to open up if there are any questions from our small group who are with us today. Ahali conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email.
1: Actually, very excited to get the chance to ask you a question. I was looking at uh, your website earlier today and um, I saw something that caught my height. Uh, in specific, it was like the, the categorization of that you use in order to, you know, like categorize your project. So I was wondering if you could explain the difference between practices, para practices and infra practices. Thank you. I have to answer this. And this is still a debate. While we were making the website, one thing that kept on happening was that it was all becoming, just showing all the different things that we have done. But there is a lot of thinking that happens. And we differentiate the stages of the thought. And we differentiated the associative capacities. So if you see a practice is something that you can say is something that three people are doing with a group of other people, a little bit of in a scale. Para and infra are different associative capacities and logic by which we are we work. Now, why we say the associative is that associative logics in contemporary art is the most powerful of contemporary art. We are writing this now in a little more fleshed-up way. Is the most uh, you can say anxiety-generative capacity of contemporary art is associative dimension. So, this para practice and the infra practice are our way of trying to figure out a new language for the associative dimension of our practice. Sarai, we call it the para-practice. Something that is extended, elaborate, and we it has a life of its own. Like sabamolla is for us a para-practice. And then there is an the infra-practice. Infra-practice is something that when we are doing curatorial, we enmesh other curatorial intelligences and practices in it. And we enmesh that and let it also grow and find its own rhythm. But that's what we call infra in the sense that it is enmeshed and moving as currents below so the curatorial is marked by our presence but our presence is highly distributed and broken down and subterranean currents are flowing around so that we have named infra so in the sense that you can say that you're desperately trying to work kind of a language and a concept that brings into four the associative dimension of contemporary art and the way we understand contemporary art's potency through the events so uh, infra practice could be happening in a biennale or could be happening in a, in a small institution that we are part of or we are contributing to. Para could be something that has a life independent of us. But associatively, we have to engage and keep on thinking it. It is not something that has happened and left behind. So we named it like that. So it's kind of an opening of the space of the practice. And also to say that this practice is actually open to all kind of linkages. And those linkages have their own dimension, but they're different also. So it's like trying to figure that language out. It's a nice question, I think, because in between three of us, we keep on discussing this. Oh, you put this in para, no, this is in infra, but it's a good, it keeps us uh, active to
0: ourselves. Thank you, Alessandra, for the question. Now that the notion of practice is raised, I have a very kind of blunt question, but I'm really curious, like what does a Rax Media Collective working session look like? Like how do you... How do you all work?
1: (laughs) Sometimes it is so silent that I don't think people figure out there are people sitting. And sometimes it is so exuberant and rough that people think that they won't return back tomorrow. So it is as far and like that. But it's basically a lot of uh, continuous exchange of matter, of text, image, ideas, stories, meetings, uh, all kinds of exchanges and transmissions of it. And also not between us only, between many footprints of ours. And then a sudden, sometimes a good burst of serendipitous combinations, and sometimes a very, very struggled way and very attacked and, you know dismantled way of create moving towards a thought, sometimes very fluid, sometimes engendered by a very nice question or an encounter with someone else who ask us to move, it, ask us a question and ask us that how are we to respond and it completely changes the way we were on something and many times very quiet, nothing happening.
2: I was just going to add that I think what was interesting about this COVID experience because, you know, we, even though we've been working together for so long, we basically try and meet all the time, Like right? It's a pretty daily practice. You know, in some ways we are like, okay, hey, we have to meet every day, we have to meet for a few hours, we will meet in, the, in a kind of third phase. Now, I mean, for the last few years, and before that, it used to be survived. you know, we've had various. But one of the things that we felt in, in what we real, what, what happened in COVID was that we couldn't meet, right? We couldn't meet physically, and it was a very interesting thing because in a way, you know, you had Zoom, so we were talking to each other. Some, you know, Jewish was other sick, but you know, at some point, we were still connecting and so on. I think not seeing each other physically for so many months did affect. So one of the things that we're trying to do, for example, now is to meet at least once a week, but not in the terms of the everyday like we used to make earlier. Like, let's change for ourselves also. And I think this is an interesting, it wasn't, even a, it wasn't even a conscious way of doing it that we needed to do this, but we definitely needed to do this, was to say, okay, we have to change the terms of our own dialogue because when life can change it for us, how about we try and change it for ourselves? And I think this is not exactly the question you asked, but right now, this is the most important aspect of things for me, is the fact that we are willing, able to change the terms of how we meet, or change the tenor of the conversation, to say we'll have a glass of wine in the afternoon, and talk and eat a lot more than we would normally eat, and then keep talking till nine o'clock at night, because just one day a week, forget it. You know, and we might work in that. We might. We might write something. We might say, okay, we have to answer five emails. And then we'll just sit and talk about, you know, the newspaper headlines that day or a book that someone is reading or, you know, things like that. So I think this has been the big shift, I would say, in a long time.
1: Or a
0: dirty gossip.
2: (laughs) Or dirty gossip.
0: Yeah, I think gossip is quite essential. I don't think (laughs) a collective can survive without gossip. (laughs) But I'm also like, this may be my projection, but I'm assuming that you are working simultaneously on several other things. Like you may be curating a biennial, but meanwhile, working on an individual work or an artwork to be authored by you. Like, I'm also curious, like how you navigate and whether it's structured to a certain extent or whether it's more loose, that kind of things.
1: In a way, it is loose but structured in a sense that if you're like when we're doing curation, we get a person or one person to, like in Shanghai, we have three, four in our studio to work on it with us. Uh, so so what happens is that they produce the structure for us, meeting them and meeting. us. So what happens, we produce some kind of a logic of a structure through the people we are working. So then the studio becomes a two-part studio. One part is working on the artworks that we are doing, and one part is working with us on the Biennale which we are doing. So, and, and, you know, and curatorially, like if you see, even then the curatorially, you, you will see in Biennale, we name like the curatorial collegiate, we name everyone as the curator who works with us. Everyone gets a kind of authorial scheme an authorial signature into the exhibition. So that model also helps us to produce for ourselves an environment around us. So that keeps the work churning, moving, going. And uh, similarly with artworks, artworks are a little more complicated because it needs a very different kind of orientation and a different kind of concentration. So sometimes it needs a off day. So we have to produce for ourselves off days. So things like that. It is structured, but it is fluid in the sense that one is not cancelling each other out. While working on artwork, you may suddenly come up with an idea that is going to really impact very big way the way that Biennale or any exhibition that we are doing is shaping up. And there, something that somebody says or does changes the way you are actually thinking about your work.
0: So my question is about the lost film, Half the Night Left and the Universe to Comprehend. There is something very powerful and poetic in the absence
1: uh, or in the removal of something when it's a crucial part of a narrative. So I'm curious about your take on that. Uh, What is your relationship with that loss like right now? Thank you.
2: What, What a beautiful question. You're absolutely right. I think the fact that we have never seen it since we made it because it was lost soon after is the most powerful thing it can be because we remember fragments from the shooting. We remember, you know, we have the text somewhere of the script. I remember the actors, like they used to look like then, but there is no facticity to this. And because it's not a fact, it's not a fact, it's equally a dream. But it's also equally a crucial moment because if we hadn't made that film, we wouldn't have become Lux Media Collective, honestly, because it was while making that film that we said, you know, Let's, let's make a film together. So we wrote a script overnight. Let's go and pitch it to someone so that they can give it. Uh, it was literally very intense. We almost broke a 16 millimeter camera while shooting it. That would have destroyed our lives financially forever, but saved it in time. We made a shot in which the camera pans to nothing and comes back to the character dying in the hospital. And the mentor was going insane with that shot. He was like, "Why does the camera move to the wall?" And he said, "Because we wanted to." I'm sure if we saw the film later, it would have been ridiculous. Like, it would have been absolutely ridiculous because it made no sense. But at that time, when you're 21 and you just want to do things, it was great that it happened, and it is even better that it lost.
1: But you know, somebody sent us a mail from Philippines that he's trying to trace it, and he's almost. I think trying to locate that there is one high-band copy of it in some archive in Germany. So he he has almost found a link. So he he sent us a link that he has almost found the workshop in which it was talked about through some uh, of his own archival research. So I'm waiting for his <laughs> discovery, which will take ten years more, I guess. So
0: <laughs> I'd like to ask something as well. Could you introduce Ashwathama for our? listeners and maybe where have you seen him the last time maybe in ukraine
2: i mean honestly this question does not even need an answer that is such a beautifully phrased question because the haunting that ashwatthama has does continues in ukraine
1: ashwatthama is becoming very busy with time it's become busier and busier like when we wrote ashwatthama it was i think 2004 we wrote ashwatthama uh, the poem on ashwatthama and the poem re- reappeared in many forms but it's somehow it is a kind of a affect of this sensibility that cannot ever complete its mission and, and always has to burn in its act so in his inner world it is burning on his act because it can never complete the destruction it has set itself on so it's a kind of a you find it around you yourself sometimes ashwatthama
0: Definitely. And uh, even when I do grocery or like when I'm in the public transportation, like I encounter it from time to time. And, and of course, like one should acknowledge that Ashatama is somewhere hidden within everyone's subjectivity in a sense. So one has to control it yeah, or tame it, I don't know, or to reconcile it.
1: Well, it has to. Die, well, one has to keep it al- alive and dialog it. It's repressed. It is very dangerous, I think.
2: Now I'm just saying that right now, for example, newspaper the, you know, in the morning, reminds us again and again what it's a. This negotiation with Ashwatthama is a delicate and a delicate and nuanced thing, because right now, I mean, besides of course the big wars that are happening, multiple wars that are happening right now in the world. When you open the newspaper in the morning in New Delhi, where I am, or something all over the country. You are always dealing with the news where this, some people have let Ashwatthama unleashed, and so the kind of the kind of travails that they put on other on the body of the other is extraordinary. And then you also see that this is what can happen if you've repressed it too long. But at the same time, if you don't tell Ashwatthama to to stay where it needs to be, it does create a lot of pain. So I think reconciliation is probably the best
1: word. Or no money. No? redressal, reconciliation doesn't work. So what can you do with... Something else. To stay with human society.
0: Do continue because now we are observing firsthand the Media Collective <laughs> thinking <from> working process. <laughs> yeah,
2: so this is active thinking because reconciliation, Jibesh, is not the fact that you're saying it is kept in its place. Reconciliation means you acknowledge the fact that it's there. You cannot, you cannot deny it but to unleash it or to repress it are both problematic directions with Ashwatthama.
1: The thing is that Ash- Ashwatthama can never give justice because he's haunted by justice. So, and he thinks retribution and revenge will give him justice and is, assuage his pain. And that can, in, keeps on increasing it. So he cannot be reconciled. It is only that you keep it alive in your head as something that is also mobilized around you, through you. So, redressal and reconciliation is a modernist uh, fiction of thinking this. I think so.
2: No, what you said about it is not possible for there to be justice, but it is haunted by justice. So, it escapes the very form that it wishes to have. Yeah, It's being escapes that form that it desires. That is human, obviously. And that, I think, is a very interesting kind of formulation that you made for Ashwatthama. I would... Still think about the idea of reconciliation. reconciliation. Is not truth and reconciliation in that sense, but like reconciliation is the fact that you acknowledge the fact that it coexists with you. You have to reconcile to that fact, not that you can reconcile communities. Not in that way.
1: Okay, so you are using it in a different way. Thank you for the so, question. Your, your questions are so amazing that it made my day.
0: This was fantastic. It's been such an amazing an hour and a bit more that I. I could continue like for much longer, but maybe we can have, if there is one final comment or question or something from you, Monica or Jibesh, if you want to add something to this conversation as a closure.
1: One thing, you know, like today I was reading this essay by an architect historian. Uh, There was this person died a few days back, Mahindra Raj, who was one of the finest structural engineer that was ever produced in India. And he made his he kind of designed structurally uh, this Hall of the Nations in 1972, which was supposed to be this progress ground Hall of the Nation. And it was an incredible building. If you type uh, Hall of the Nation, Mahindra Raj, you will find this building structurally. It is a kind of a, how do you call it, uh, structural beams and rising like this with massive play of sunlight and wind. And for the, in 72, it was supposed to be the heralding, 25th year of Indian independence, heralding the. But that building did survive. It was demolished two years back to make way for a new building for the 75th year of Indian independence. So, what is interesting is one of the most daring acts of making building and claim of futurity, lose the charm of the futurity for the same, for the ruling class when it matures itself into thinking it's a global ruling class and destroys its most global movement to celebrate its 75th birthday. Now, I think that you can say we are in that kind of complex cusp because we are interested in questions of futurities, claims to futures. We are interested in how past keep on haunting, like you said about Ashuttham. And because of Ashuttham, I was reminded of it. And we are continuously reminded of it. And we see that in front of us completely inability of other futures being able to even argue itself there was no even a very poor heritage arguments was made no serious argument was made to hold on to that architectural marvel of modernity in india i think no such daring building was ever made and this is the years you can say for 30 40 50 years of our delhi that we are and it is in delhi the story is in delhi that we are part of and that we are moving towards a decade that we need many, many millions of uh, this associative conversation all over the world for us to make sense of our world. So thank you for it.
0: No, thank you so much for this final anecdote as well, because it's like one of the ongoing threads of this season of Ahali is like historians of other futures. So that touches directly on that thread as well. So I appreciate it. With that regards, and yeah, thank you for this amazing session, Monica, Jibesh, and everyone who joined. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Jan. Hope to remain in touch. Yes, it was uh, really, really exciting.
2: See you more often than 20 years or whatever.
1: 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. was remarkable.
2: Thank you, Jan. Bye.
1: Ciao. Thank you very much.
0: The tidal changes in image cultures, how digital technologies are intertwined with urban infrastructures and how the poetic is also the political and ultimately the significance of languages are few of the things that are lingering in my mind and provoking further thought after this conversation. It's always amazing to be thinking together with our guests and also get to observe them in action, at least through their thinking and talking. After all, as Monica said, there is thought in practice, and therefore there is practice in thought, and you cannot tear these two asunder. Ahali conversations are produced by Asla Altai and Sarprenk Özer with Dalia Yildiz as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburcak, with music by Group SES. This episode was also supported by a Moon and Stars project grant from the American Turkish Society. Finally. It goes without saying, but we really appreciate the support from you, our listener. By subscribing, rating, following, or simply letting a friend know, you help us reach to more ears. So thank you. This was a highly conversations with me Jan Altai and we hope to see you next time.